that's where art can help. We can visualize a good end. We can tell them, you know, within the frames and paintings and drawings of performance that hope is lying out there. We just need to continue fighting. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Art Persist podcast, a series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. In this episode, we speak to Badiyuid Sao, a popular and prolific political artist from China who confronts a variety of social and political issues head on in his work. He uses his art to challenge the censorship and dictatorship in China via his Twitter account at Sao. His work was used by Amnesty International, Freedom House, BBC and many other platforms and exhibited in Australia, America and Italy. In this episode, which is slightly longer than our usual episodes, we really unpack his life and his work, talking about everything from his upbringing and move into art as a young man to the continued harassment and censorship of his work all around the world by the Chinese authorities. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's fantastic to have you on the Arpsis podcast. We normally start the podcast by asking our guests always the same question, which is to describe a work of art or a film or a poem that has inspired your life and your career. But I think I probably know yours because I read this, I read a story about how you came across a documentary about Tiananmen Square and how it kind of changed your life. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and how that, the effect that that had on your life and your career. Right. I mean, um, okay. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I got asked about, uh, uh, well, this documentary and this incident mm. a lot. Um, mm. And I know a lot of media or articles were trying to bring that thing as some kind of a, you know, epiphany moment or yeah. my waking up core, things like that. But I want to say, you know, things, things is not that, simple uh yeah but however you know giving the limited space for uh traditional media and interview that they 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 tend to simplify things and you know mm. it's uh you know if i be really honest with you i wouldn't say that it's always a process um that mm. uh you know you gradually have a better understanding of yourself as well as the society that you grow up with and eventually mm. collect enough courage to not just about knowing things, but also about commentate on things, whether uh, it's use your art or use the writing or some other ways. I just wouldn't say, you know, this is the moment um, that eventually yeah. make the fundamental change. Um uh, but however, uh, to be honest, this this documentary or this incident does play a very important role um, that uh, kind of shaping of my understanding of current China. Um, yeah. So I am born in China in 1986, three years before the Tiananmen uh, student movement, uh, as well as the mm. Tiananmen massacre. Uh, but when I grow up, um, basically, 
nobody ever really tell uh, anything about this very significant event. Uh, yeah. Not from my family, not from education, not from publication, not from mm. you know screen, not from radio, nothing. It was basically erased from the history as I grow up until uh, when I studied in the actually I studied in a law school in in China, mm-hmm. not not as an artist, and um, well. University students in China are all being put into like uh, a school campus, uh, which also including living space, like a dorm. So yeah. you don't really rent outside of the university, but you live actually live with your classmates. So mm-hmm. my classmates and me have this uh, weekly ritual is like pirating films uh, from internet mm. and uh, that was like at the beginning of the 2000s like 2000 mm-hmm. 2003 2004 at that kind of time it was you know quite quite a while ago it was before screening Netflix and and, yeah. and anything around it it's about you know uh, we use uh, email that uh, we actually pirating the, the actual file mm-hmm. instead of just watch it online uh, mm. And uh, the way it works is there are personal, you know, uh, device or computer connecting to internet and uploading those uh, well files or videos mm. as seeds. So in that way, you know, most of the time you get what you wish for, but sometimes you just don't know what what you actually downloaded. And for this mm. weekend, we like want to watch a. It was my classmates who want to watch like a Taiwanese romance, popular film or something. Yeah. I was like, yeah, we're, okay, we're going to watch it. But when we finished the downloading uh, of that film, it, it was just a little bit uh, weird uh, because the fire is larger. It looks like the screening time of the fire is much longer than, you know, just 90 minutes as standard film. But we think, you know, whatever, let's just see what it is. So, like almost in the middle of the fire, it, it turned into something completely different from what mm. we watched earlier, and it turned out to be a documentary that recording the entire movement, uh, the pro democracy movement in 1989 China, uh, and also including um, the very brutal cracking down and the massacre in the end. Mm. Um, Obviously, that is the first time that all of us been exposed to this forgotten uh, period of history. Um, mm. I mean, it's it's quite a shocking experience because yeah. when we see those young souls being crushed by tanks on the street, they were the same age as we were when we were watching this documentary. You know, we're in yeah. the, uh, universities, uh, so were they. Um, mm. and and you know, it happened in 1989, it is only like 16, uh, 15 years ago, it was not that yeah. far, but yeah, ambiguous. And you know, crazy thing is how, how come that we don't even know that happened? Mm. Um, and when we see ourselves and compare with those young spirits on the Tiananmen Square, we immediately see the difference because mm. 
I mean, my generation of young people who grow up are not really thinking anything like individual would have the power to do protest and uh, having this capacity to change the regime. Uh, yeah. It's all just about getting a good job, um, you know, get married, buy an apartment mm. in Shanghai, my hometown, and that's the life goal. Um, so mm. for me, I just feel like um, it, it's 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 such a, a shocking experience, and 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 but it's also undeniable that the fact is there because it's a three-hour-long documentary. You know, there's yeah. There's, the footage, there's a testimony. Um, there's no way it has not happened, but but, mm. but somehow it disappeared. Um, so that yeah. is the experience of mm. many other experience that gradually unfolding the mystery and the problem of the um, Chinese society. Um, the reason yeah. why I say that, you know, this is not really about just one documentary and one incident. Um, I am both unfortunate and fortunate that being born in a family who are very artistic and once mm. artist uh, for my great parents' generation as well. Um, but uh, my grandpa and his brother are both persecuted for their mm. movie making um, mm. in the 1950s. Um, in 1957, there was this political campaign of persecution called Hundred Blossom. It was designed to cleansing the uh, intellectual and artists uh, in China yes. who uh, believe, you know, art should not just be propaganda or there should be, you know, variety of genres and take on art creation. Uh, mm-hmm. However, everything that is not fitting into um, the China's Communist Party's propaganda will be seen as, uh, by the time, called uh, poison grass. So they're the poison grass, those vicious and evil artists planted into society in order to dooming this new communist regime. And f- mm-hmm. unfortunately, my great parents' um, generation uh, are those criminals, political criminals by the time yeah. already. So for me, when I grow up with those family stories that I know there's something gravely wrong about China in the history. Um, yeah. But I guess what the documentary incident did, is it, it completed my puzzle of understanding China you know, through the time, mm. not just my family, uh, memory that being told about my parents but also mm. i know this tyranny continues and it never changed because yeah. now only 15 16 years ago uh the same kind of uh, oppression and same kind of brutal cracking down is happening to um the following generations and it never stopped yeah. it um so yeah, that would be, you know, the the real meaning of that incident to me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for building it out. And I wonder, you obviously, you was you mentioned that you were studying law at the time. How how long was it after that point that you decided to change your career and focus on art? 
Um, well, it's it's another long story. So basically, um, what makes me want to moving out from China is I always feel like I want to pursuing the parts of my great parents um, yeah. that I think I can be an artist and I can I can do mm. all the fun things like what they did before. Um, but because of the uh, you know historic um, tragedy that happened to my family my parents never want to support me to do so because they yeah. think uh, great parents has proved that being an artist can be very dangerous in china they mm-hmm. would rather me to do something else um yeah my dad always said that he liked me to be a barber to cutting hairs <laughs> or uh, a sheriff in the kitchen because people always get hungry and people's hair <laughs> continues growing i will never mm-hmm. be out of a job but in the meantime, probably be away from all the troubles that, you know, yeah. compare with making art. Uh, mm. But for me, I feel like this is not really the future that uh, I want to have. Uh, mm. You know, like I mentioned, I can't imagine that staying in China, the trajectory of my life will be very uh, limited. It is always just yeah. about looking for a good job, find a uh you know get married and then repeating and have another kid doing the same thing but uh when i can truly fulfill my potential or interests um or talent uh it is just not on the table if i choose to stay in china so Mm -hmm. in order to not particularly thinking to be an artist just thinking to extending the possibility of my life uh i feel mm. like i have to leave china and and finding a place uh where you know respecting individuals better where young people would have opportunity to make mistakes yeah. in their life and try different things mm. um so in order to achieve that um i have to go to an immigration country uh mm. and on this planet there aren't many choices especially so uh, in in the western you know wealthy and uh, democratic society you mm-hmm. have uh australia uh american canada probably that's it you know even for yeah. europe or uk it, it would be much harder um Very tough. so mm. yeah so you know there's not much choice and, and for me um australia is just you know kind of closer you know uh mm-hmm. it's it, distant wisely there's no close immigrant country anyway but in australia there are like huge chinese population already and mm. so this choice is purely based on practical reason right <laughs> yeah. and, and in order to get this bloody green card which is uh means the permanent visa i have to study something that is not uh, from interest but only okay. because it providing me a shortcut to stay mm. for good in Australia. Mm-hmm. And again, this is another big question because the only one who are welcomed in Australia as skillful migrants are for those who are willing to the job which with shitty pay. I don't know, can I yeah. curse in this program or not? Of but, course you can. Okay. Of course you right. can. <laughs> so for this shitty job with shitty pay um so mm. you know the local don't want to do and that's where yeah. the immigrants fitting into the holes 
Um, and in Australia, that nobody wants to be a teacher, especially for early childhood education, because it's okay. a very demanding job and the payment is bad in everywhere. You know, education, even though it's not about art, but I know if I go down on that path, I can learn more about humanity, um, mm. people's development, uh, social science as well within the education brand. So. Mm. I choose education and start a master degree there. And after that, I worked as like caregiver in the childcare, uh, also mm-hmm. a teacher in the primary school for about two years until I have yeah. the uh, permanent visa. And that's where <laughs> I can finally say, okay, now I've spent four years of the golden time of my use in the 20s, oh. just so mm-hmm. I can you know, finally stay and yeah. do whatever the heck I want. Um, mm. And and roughly around that time, I started making art. Amazing. And it's, it's interesting that you, you know, working as a teacher and with, you know, young children, because sometimes your art can be, you know, draw on the juvenile to kind of, to show the absurdity of the Chinese authorities. And I'm thinking here about when yeah. you, so uh, Xi Jinping as Winnie the Pooh, for example, and how just the humor that comes with that. Do you think? Do you think teaching and education had an impact on your work in that way? That it kind of helped, you know, it inspired some sort of like comedy or kind of childlike comedy in that sense. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And uh, even though I, I didn't choose to be the teacher, but I. I I must say that I enjoy the course a lot um, mm. because I think it's it's very hard to really get to know a, a society, particularly when it's organizing such different system. Um, but mm. education is such a fascinating section that allowing you to see how um, the society is organized from the very beginning. You know, I still remember yeah. the first course that I take, uh, which is called play as a center of the curriculum. Uh, this thing is very, very um, different from all my experience of teaching and education back in China uh, when yeah. I was a student there. You know, education is always just about hard work. Uh, it's about mm. reciting things and things like that. Uh, but really uh, that valuing such thing as play. Um, but yeah. in Australia, you know, um, children's well-being is, uh, you know, considered from the very beginning significantly. So a mm. lot of it, it's it's not just, you know, the childish side or, or you know, cartoonish side that are pertained as the form for my art. But also more importantly, I think, it providing me in an angle to understand the difference between China um, and, let's say, Western society uh, from mm. education perspective but of course mm. i mean uh particularly for political cartooning um we use a lot um to deliberately making authoritarian figure like xi jinping or um you know trump or some politician mm. from australia in a childish way because that's how you kind of deconstruct the authority from those yeah. figures. Um, and cartoonish, making it childish is definitely one of the very uh, efficient way to do so, uh, 
because mm-hmm. you show them as a clown, as a funny thing, as someone that is not above the ground like God figure, but someone that just among us, sometimes even naive and childish. Um, yeah. Actually, you know, the Winnie work, um, there was one work that's showing almost like a trophy hunting that uh, Xi Jinping was riding mm-hmm. on a cop of Big Yellow Bear. And that cartoon was mm-hmm. named as she is on the bear hunt. So that's a direct <laughs> reference of the mm. children's ram, you know. Yeah. We we are going on a bear hunt, that one. Mm-hmm. So yes, um, I guess this period of experience, even though it's a detour, but it's not just a waste of time. Mm. It, it does give yeah. me more to say in my art. Hi. This is Hussam Fazullah, co-founder of Bosla Arts. Did you know our latest issue, Beyond Resilience, is now out? Featuring seven artists from around the world going beyond the state of resilience through art, activism, and action. As a listener of the Art Persist podcast, you can get 15% using the code TAPP, all in caps. Order now at boslaarts.com. Now, back to the podcast. I wanted to ask you, so... Now you've you've got your visa, you're you've finished, you know, you you're able to leave your educational role. When did you start making art and who were some of your biggest influences as a young artist? The first like um artwork that I published on social media is commentating on the um high-speed train colliding incident that happened in China in 2011. Yeah. Um, and and by the time, there's two things that I uh, have to highlight. So one is uh, what makes me want to, you know, join into uh, this conversation and, and discuss about this public incident is, is by the time that um, the Chinese equivalent Twitter, which is called Weibo, just got mm. uh, crazily popular in China. And that was, mm. you know, 11, 12 years ago, um, the social media is still very new, especially to yeah. uh, Beijing. And they didn't realize it could be, you know, such a powerful and and harmful elements that are threatening its regime. So, yeah. but, but in the meantime, even they want to control it, they don't have the uh, technology or mechanism to dealing with social media in this manner like they have mm. now. So you have this very fascinating gap between the control and the technology that breeding um, all kind of different speech in China uh, mm. for a while. And, and in that year, um, the, the, the train colliding incident is probably one of the, one of the most popped uh, incidents in China. And it just exploded on Weibo, the Chinese Twitter. And mm. when I was in, you know, Australia and just witnessing what is happening online inside of China, inside of China, it was like uh, a real uh, surreal experience uh, mm. because I didn't expect that so many Chinese people would like to engage in the public discussion like that. And that just makes yeah. me want to be a part of it. Um, but instead of, you know, mm. writing or speaking i feel like i want to test my art uh and i have confidence in my art as well so that mm. that like you know kind of 
motivated me to do the first, uh, well, political commentary art by the time. Yeah. Uh, and that's when I started. Um, I think for artists that inspire me the most, there are always references in the history as well as contemporary practice. Um, mm -hmm. For the early work, uh, particularly from our political and cartoon side, you will see I really limited my palette to mm -hmm. just black, red, and white. And yeah. the style is very much, you know, approach to the propaganda art style uh, that you will see mm -hmm. in China, particularly in the so-called Great Cultural Revolution period of time. Um, yeah. Until now, you probably can still see it in North Korea when they do the propaganda art and mm -hmm. um but if if we trace origin of those propaganda arts from the communism, it actually started in the in Germany in the Weimar time uh, when there's mm -hmm. a female artist called Cassie um, Korwitz. So Cassie Korwitz was uh, um, uh, a leading artist for the German expressionism, um, mm. but not many people actually uh, knowing. Uh, how important she is, as she deserved to be. Uh, I think it's majorly because one, she's a left-wing artist, is uh, yeah. you know pro-internationalism communism by the time, and two, of course, she's female artist, and female artists do not have yeah. their you know fair position in art history. Um, but the reason why I would know her is. So by the time she did a lot of woodcut print um, during mm. like labor movement or or um, you know uh, communist movement in in, in mm. Germany as well as in the entire Europe, and her work is introduced by a very famous writer. His name is Lu Xun in the beginning of mm. 20th century to China in order to inspire the left movement in China during the revolution time, also in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and that is the connection, and the, gradually this style got adapted almost by every left-wing visual artist by the time. Mm. And, you know, but of course, from the beginning, it's about advocating for the poverty, advocating for the people who are powerless. But when the representative of the powerless finally grasps the power as a communist party now, they're just mm. stopping to using the art form as a way to self-reflection and the criticism, but transforming it into a political and propaganda art style. So for a quite a long time, I was adapting or imitating the same style, but try to bring it back to its origin when Kath Corwitz was using it to actually supporting the people who do not have mm -hmm. a voice. Um, and of course, um, gradually, you know, you can't just satisfy with one style for too long. Yeah. And I'm moving to other forms later. Mm -hmm. That is an amazing story. And it's, it's just so kind of extraordinary to think of that kind of full circle moment where a style becomes something kind of in the shape of protest and then is co-opted and transformed and then brought back. So that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Sure thing. You mentioned something um interesting that I wanted to talk you know ask you about which is the sense of being in a in Australia and seeing things happen 
I guess also as soon as you you moved from China, you suddenly had access to so much more information about what was going on there that I I assume had been censored before. Um, yeah. And then thinking about the work that you've done ever since, um, I actually interviewed Gianluca Costantini uh, last week for this podcast as well, and okay. he he described you as kind of the artist of the Hong Kong protests, and it made me think about this this relationship that you must have between being somewhere watching on and using your work, but then also seeing it, you know, being used in in different movements or as forms of protest. How does that feel to you? What is that? Is there kind of, um, yeah, what's that balance between being, you know, looking on, but also being part of it at the same time? So I guess um, being a, uh, exiled or self-exiled artists who want to uh, making the work that about the country that you can never come back the biggest yeah. challenge is that how can you make sure the work that you presented uh, about this country is still authentic uh, and the relevance because mm. the longer you go the less first-hand experience you would have and 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 yeah. then the question is how can you make it justify that my art is still about China even though I'm living in an entirely different environment. Um, yeah. I think fortunately internet does bring the gap smaller and solve a lot of problems. And also the other argument that I I would use is because this terrible censorship that happened in China. So it's mm. not necessary for people to understand China, even when they are inside of China. They can have yeah. a scope of understanding of their daily life. But beyond that, if they do not use VPN or the methods to see information other than the national TV or propaganda, mm. then you know you wouldn't be able to really know about what's going on in this country um, yeah. unless you know, you're outside. So uh, even because the difficulty that I just described, I still think I'm in a relatively better position to um, really balancing the understanding of China and in the time uh, have a relatively safe and free environment to speak up for those who cannot. Um, So back to the question about uh, how I use my online art showcasing to connect with reality and even the protesters mm. that are on the ground in Shanghai or China later. So in 2019, there was the massive protest that happened in Hong Kong. But yeah. um, before that, there's already signs uh, that are happening in Hong Kong that showing, you know, uh, the Communist China is uh, tightening the grip on Hong Kong and try to, mm-hmm. um, you know, eliminate its freedom. Um, and, and there has been cases before 2019 that book publishers being kidnapped from Hong Kong mm. to China, uh, yeah. who are you know dedicated in the book about China's political issues. Um, mm. And also in 2018, uh, my show uh, in Hong Kong got threatened yeah. and eventually canceled uh, in the end of 2018. Mm. Um, that was a very, very um, difficult time for me uh, yeah. because 
one is actually before that. So from 2011 to 2018, I worked as an anonymous artist. I yeah. do not show my face in the public. Um, I wear masks all the time. And yeah. that's also where I kind of got this nickname of China's banks, which I, I hate to gut. But, but in that day, so what happened is three days before the opening, um, the National Security Police came to my home uh, yeah. in Shanghai and took my relatives to the police station and uh, interrogated them for something that they have zero idea because I kept it yeah. very separate. My art life has no, you know, cross with my real life. So no one okay. that knowing my real identity would know that actually I make political art and post it on Twitter all wow. the time. Mm. Um, so after that happens, um, it really tightens me closely with Hong Kong because that was my first solo exhibition or supposed to be my oh, first wow. solo exhibition and yeah. it canceled. Um, it was a big event. Uh, I was collaborating with Nasty International, Hong Kong Free Press, mm. um, Journalist Without Border. And mm. in the opening, we invited a lot of activists, including the very famous Hong Kong young activist, uh, Joshua Wang, uh, as well mm. as members from Pussy Riots. So they were visiting mm -hmm. Hong Kong in 2018 that time. Um, wow. But none of that is going to happen. And and my family was in, you know, police station and the, the police were sending the message to me that they want me to cancel the show. Uh, they want me to stop yeah. into making art. Once for, they also threatened sending the police from uh, Shanghai um, to mm. Hong Kong if I choose to open the show. Um, that was putting not just pressure and, and, and threat to me, but also to my family or to everyone that yeah. I know in China, as well as my collaborators, helpers of the vision in Hong Kong. Yeah. So the show is canceled um, due to this tremendous pressure and the potential threat because nobody is mm. expecting that. They really ambushed me. Like I said, it was yeah. it happened three days before the bloody opening. So oh I got no God. time to think. And every day they actually, by the time that what the police do is every day, they took a different relative to the police station uh, and forcing yeah. me to respond. And eventually they get their way for the middle game. Yeah. Um, but apparently that's not the end of the story. Otherwise we're not going to have this conversation today. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> six months later, uh, I reappeared with my art and actually with a with mm -hmm. a documentary, China's Art mm -hmm. Dissidents. Um, and it was broadcasted nationwide in Australia. And in that document, mm -hmm. I decided to, you know, reveal my identity, reveal my face. Um, yeah. well, in the end of the documentary. And I want to use that to tell the Chinese government that knowing my identity. Uh, does not mean they have a control on me and I'm not yeah. compromising. Um, and in the meantime, uh, actually, the documentary was released on the 4th of June, uh, that year's Tiananmen Massacre anniversary. And yeah. several days after that, the Hong Kong protest started, uh, which is wow. anti, uh, you know, a pro 
pro-democracy and anti-extradition uh, law to mainland yeah. China. So mm -hmm. you know how strong I feel with this protest. It was like, yeah. I know this is going to happen. This is what the Chinese government are doing because they've already done mm. it to me in my exhibition six months ago. And now uh, they're threatening the entire city uh, with this corrupt yeah. law system. So I must do something. So I, and I've decided following the news um, and, you know, talking to all my connections back in Hong Kong and just putting all my works that created alongside the movement online and make it available for any protest to download and use. So almost yeah. every day I or every two or three days I would do a work that's uh, echoing with the latest situation. Then the next day, um, the work will be printed out and appear in, in the protest. I mean, that's probably yeah. the, the best. I always say that's the best experience that you can have as an artist. It's much Amazing. cooler than you can exhibit in Tate or, you know, MoMA, <laughs> but hold by the people on the street. So it's like three months, uh, six months ago, they took my opportunity to show in a gallery space. Yeah. But now the entire city, every fucking street with the people who are holding my art, they turn the entire city into my gallery mm. and mm. everybody's gallery as well. And, but, also through the process, it's not just about fulfill my personal interest, course, but yeah. you know I, I realize how much protest art uh, mean to to a movement that it can make it healthy and last longer. Because the Hong Kong process lasts like a marathon; it's almost six months. Mm -hmm. um, but any movement, when it's I guess longer than three weeks. All kinds of problems appear. Um, yeah. Firstly, that people start stopping to seeing the hope within the movement because it's a long mm. time. It's very devastating. It's very tiring as well. Even without yeah. the police brutality, even just for marching on the day after day, without demanding being meet, you mm. would have this sense of desperation because you don't know where the end is. You just simply do yeah. not see the light in the end of the tunnel. That's where yeah. art can help. We can visualize a good end. We can tell them, you know, within the frames and paintings and drawings of performance that hope is lying out there. We just need to continue fighting. Um, yeah. And also, like I said, you know, it's, it's, it's mentally hard, physically hard. But then the police coming in, starting doing very violent cracking down. You see the tear gas, you see the rubber bullets, and the real uh, emanation in the end. Mm. The whole atmosphere would be very, very depressed. And then the political art, especially political cartoons, the humor within it, becomes such an mm. important thing that to keep people's uh, momentum or ram higher. You give them a sense of hope, but also because you're mocking those leaders, the police, you give them a slice mm -hmm. of joy through those protesters in the darkest time. That yeah. makes the movement last. I'm just saying my work is doing that because there are numerous, many other artists who sometimes to be choose to be anonymous, sometimes bravely show their face. But all of us are contribute to this movement with our art. And and the other thing is, from the media-wise, you know, um, 
in the very beginning, um, you have all the media coming into Hong Kong, shooting the march on the street, filming how police is beating up young kids on the streets. This is very shocking. It's yeah. it's a spectacle, but it only lasts for a couple of weeks until the audience getting tired of it. Um, mm. So that's also where art can help because it bringing new form of protest, uh, creating yeah. more spectacle, creating more. Mm. Interesting angle for uh, the journalism continues. Um, yeah, like in Hong Kong, there's so much art performance being introduced. There's this Lenin wall when people literally change the scene on the street by putting into yeah. colorful notes. You know, it's not just a form of expression; it's a site citywide site specific protest art. Yes. Like a huge installation, basically changing the look. Of entire block with tiny little colorful sticks, as poetic and strong it is, it is also a piece of art. You're giving yeah. so much more content, um, and you know, just to the media to report. Yeah, and things like that becoming an engine to keep the protest alive. Mm. You know, um, I have this friend who's an um, uh, artist from. Egypt and and I always remember he told me that during the Arabic Spring, that yeah, it is when he's stopping to seeing new art merged, then he realized the movement is dying, and and, yeah. and as long as the art you know the creativity is still high, uh, it's still ongoing that the movement continues, and I I always yeah. remember this sentence and I think. It is verified in my uh, involvement and, and, and supporting to the Hong Kong movement as mm. well. And of course, uh, in the end, it, it does not really achieve what it wanted because the big mainland Chinese government is inserting the national security law. But also, you know, it's winter; it's getting colder, and eventually, the bloody COVID are coming in, and 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 they yeah. have the perfect excuse to shutting down the public venue. You know. Yeah, but but if we, it was not like that, it's already a miracle that a mm. that a great movement uh, involving millions of people on the street lasted for six months, and, and I definitely think that the art played a very central role um, yeah. to make this movement sustainable um, and, and lasting. Definitely, and I think I think it's so right about also that a sense of when protests happen and even if it's for a short amount of time you see the public space becoming the people's again I mean in our first season of this um, podcast series we interviewed um, Lady Liberty Hong Kong and who told us about that amazing journey of putting up the statue on Lion Rock and and actually everyone I've ever talked to who's been part of a protest whether it's in Egypt or Hong Kong or Belarus, wherever around the world, there's never that sense of regret because it's that moment where you feel, even if it's for a short time, you feel like you, yeah. the people have the power. Um, I, and it's, I it mean, stays with you. Yeah, it's it's about a, a branding process. If we use, mm. if we borrow the capitalism idea to explain it, <laughs> branding, advertising, a visual icon. Visual communication is not just for product, but it can also yeah. be used for social movement. 
And you know, the, the statue of Liberty Lady, um, the, the black bohemian flags, um, mm -hmm. the slogan, and their, their national anthem glory, Hong Kong, that all of mm -hmm. that is contributing to branding the movement that united people, yeah. that makes it live longer. You have a trace, even after the movement ended, those artwork left it become an important milestone and people can revisit it time and time again. You know, all those photos and videos that appear on social media will disappear. Even now, when you're searching for Hong Kong protest, the image coming out from the Google result will be very different uh, yeah. during the time of the protest. But if you searched art, it will be there because it will be revisited, shared and represented again and again. It becomes a symbol that lasts much mm. longer. Yeah. Yeah, you raised a very good point about censorship that you don't just face from the Chinese authority, obviously, but they're from the rest of the world. What's your experience of that? Um, I mean, people must understand that the arms of censorship from China is it's much longer than they imagine. It's not just yeah. they have the capacity to, you know, detain my relatives back in China, but they also throw a lot of shadows all over the world. Um, yeah. I'm based in Australia, but to be honest, I haven't do a proper exhibition here for about four to three years. Wow. And I've um, I've been rejected by curators uh, or galleries multiple times uh, through different reasons. And, mm. and I have this one <laughs> incident that I like to share that I was involved in a group show in, in Sydney uh, in 2019. Um, mm. And I only have one piece of the work. But just before, again, before the opening, the gallery owner watched my documentary. And she got spooked completely. No She's worried that the Chinese authority will retaliate the gallery because they're showing my work. So they want to kill the whole show. And eventually wow. the curator had agreement with the gallery saying that they will took down my uh, work, uh, oh, but God. keep the rest of it. So this is the level of censorship that I'm facing in Australia. I just yeah. simply do not have uh, showing opportunities. The only place I can go is definitely online, uh, but also mm. doing street artworks in Australia. Yeah. Um, Europe and America is slightly better, um, particularly in Europe. A reason that I did two major exhibitions, one in Italy, one mm. in Czech. Um, however, both of the exhibitions is directly threatened by the Chinese embassy and the consulate. Wow. So what wow. they do is they email um, the gallery as well as the uh, uh, city council uh, where it hosts my exhibition and demand them to cancel the show and calling my artist hurting the Chinese feeling. It, it's racist again, Chinese, even though I am Chinese. Um, and they basically it's a blackmailing message saying that if they choose to proceed my exhibition, then there will be problem between the cultural exchange program mm. in the future between let's wow. say Italy and China. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, they would call private number of the curators and demand them to cancel the show. They were sending nationalists to my public speech and disturbing uh, the conference by shouting uh, and cursing. 
Uh, in Italy, I even got approached by people who telling me, you know, there are mafia <laughs> in Italy and you can oh be dropped God. on the street anytime. You should just leave yeah. here as soon as possible. You know, they would appear as my supporters, but telling this like terrible stories. And in, in the beginning, I said, okay, sometimes, you know, this isn't, can be paranoid. Maybe that's the case. Yeah. But then the same narrative just repeated by different person, same story, mm. you know. They are mafias, um, like like Robert De Niro's film, you know. Yeah, uh, they're yeah. gonna kill you on the street. You just go. And then I realized, okay, this this is a mind game. It's a it's mm. it's a play on my uh, uh, a worry, my self worry. So um, this is the reality when you truly want to, you know, take on a a very powerful regime like China, yeah. and that's the difficulty that I'm facing.
I've taken so much of your time. So I'm just going to ask you one uh, more question. Obviously, the world is changing a lot and very quickly. And as much as, you know, we've seen like huge protest movements happen, um, we're also seeing new ways that governments are able to crush dissent. And I was wondering whether you see the form of art as a, you know, art as a form of resistance or as a form of, you know, political um opposition whether you think the tactics need to change at all whether we need to try new ways of um you know criticizing governments that kind of thing through art um well firstly i think we still have this fundamental problem that a lot of dinosaurs are trying to argue that activism is not art or political art mm. is not the fine art the high art that we should celebrate it. This mentality is problematic and outdated, and yeah. this must be changed and addressed urgently. Um, mm. I'm not saying it because I'm a you know a dissident artist, a human rights defender um, for China, um, but also I'm saying it is it is because that it's not just about one country. It's yeah. the whole world is stepping into this very uncertainty of history. Um, yeah. and, and especially with issues like uh, climate change as a global mm -hmm. issue, as Russia's invasion in Ukraine, um, yeah. as many terrible things that are happening, you know, also the decaying of democracy that we see in uh, America in the bloody Brexit in the UK, then it's mm -hmm. no longer just a regional issue anymore. And it's a global yeah. problem, big difficulty that we're facing. And now, of course, that considering China's aggression around Taiwan, um, it yeah. will eventually have a higher, much higher possibility that leading us to a total annihilation and doom, as well as yeah. a world war third um so yeah. if we understand the circumstance now then i really think you know it, it is no time for the argument that what what art is and what art isn't uh, or if mm -hmm. you know activism is not art it's actually i would say that every artist if you do see yourself as someone who are sensitive to our world and have a mm -hmm. platform to speak up, then you should speak up. You shouldn't yeah. just hiding in this evil tower that everything only for the sake of art. Because we're yeah. in a deep shit now. And if we don't act, then you wouldn't have the luxury to hiding in your little internal visual exploration spiritual mm. world. Um, and also, I think artists should have the responsibility to do so um, because, you know, we are a group of people being celebrated as some kind of intellectual in the society. When people see artworks, they're not seeing it from a height and looking down. They see it from mm. a lower position to looking up. Everything mm. that exhibiting in the white cube will be seen as some kind of elevating for your spirit and educational experience. 
And the artists who have the capacity and, and, and privilege to exhibiting in those institutions who inherently have authority and the power should bear the burden of social responsibility as well. Yeah. And because of that, you know, it's it's just not fair and not right for artists saying, I'm only doing my arts, not activism. I don't want to talk about yeah. political issues. It, for me, morally, I do not really think it's accepted anymore, uh, mm. given what is happening in this world. But of course, I, I you know, I cannot force anyone to do so. Uh, people do have their own choices if they choose not. But I would encourage, particularly the younger generation of artists, that looking to what's happening around them, not just drowning yourself in the individual dream, uh, because yeah. at the end of the day, this will be a privilege. We'd like to thank Banyo Tsao for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about his work, please find the link in the description. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Art Persist podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and share it online. Only with your help can these really important stories be heard. Thanks for listening and see you next week.